The Reverend Dr. J. Johnson, a guest preacher at Church of Our Savior, reflects that Jesus' harsh words about family throw a huge question mark into assertions today in our society about biblical family values. We are challenged to remember God even above our most cherished societal institutions. I don't usually give titles to my sermons, but this week, if I were to do so, I would be tempted to call it something like, oh, I don't know, patriarchs behaving badly, <laughs> or maybe desperate ancient Mediterranean housewives, <laughs> or more simply still, beware of biblical family values. It's quite remarkable, and I would say actually fortuitous, that the lectionary just happened to assign these readings this week, coming, as this week does, right on the heels of the first fully legal same-sex marriages in California. Maybe you've heard something about that. <laughs> fortuitous, it seems to me, because these readings present a great opportunity for congregations to ponder what in the world the institution of marriage has to do with Christian faith. Given the tenor of the marriage equality debate in this country, you'd think the answer to that question is obvious or self-evident. It isn't. And I have to say, I'm really quite perplexed by the way Jesus has emerged in recent years in some quarters of our society as the champion of the American family. Set aside for a moment that the American family would have been completely unrecognizable to the first century Palestinian Jesus. Set aside as well that Jesus was apparently unmarried and childless, which was a very marginal position to occupy in his society. Even more significant is how the gospel writers chose to portray the teachings of this single savior. According to Luke, Jesus turned to a large crowd that was traveling with him along a road and said, whoever comes to me and does not hate, hate father and mother, wife and children, and brothers and sisters cannot be my disciple. According to both Matthew and Luke, to a man who wished to be his disciple but wanted first to attend his father's funeral, Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when told that his mother and brothers wanted to see him, Jesus pointed to his disciples and said, These here are my mother and my brothers. And of course, what we heard this morning from Matthew. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Put it mildly, Jesus does not seem to be a friend, let alone a champion, of what we mean by marriage and family. According to the Acts of the Apostles, the earliest Christian community took that posture to heart, and 
displaced the biological family in, in, in favor of the faith family and created their own little microeconomic system. According to Luke, those early Christians did not claim, quote, ownership of any private possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. St. Paul, one of our favorites, St. <laughs> Paul seems likewise to have been shaped by this really radical first century reassessment of the family. Paul worried that marriage was a distraction from the more important work of Christian ministry. And in his view, marriage was, at best, a last-ditch solution for those who could not otherwise control their lust. There's a ringing endorsement of marriage. <laughs> Sign up if you're weak-willed. Now, to be sure, most biblical scholars would be quick to point out here that many of these biblical texts were shaped by the expectation of the imminent return of Christ and the fulfillment of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. In other words, if the world as you know it is about to end, there's no point in taking out a mortgage and having kids. Now, if we turn our attention to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the situation is decidedly different, but it's no less problematic. There are no words in ancient Hebrew equivalent to our English words wife, husband, or marriage. This means that translators of the Hebrew Bible face a really significant challenge when they're trying to render these texts into English. So they have to make this interpretive leap and suppose that a particular woman is something like a wife if she appears in the list of property owned by the male head of a household. And if God has really blessed you, like King Solomon, for example, you'll have many wives and as many concubines as you can afford to keep. That sheds some light on this morning's story from Genesis, actually, in which both Sarah and Hagar would have been considered Abraham's wives. Not a wife and a slave woman. Two wives. In short, whatever most people mean by the words marriage and family today, we're not going to find them in the Bible. And you know, if we turn instead to the first few centuries of Christian traditions, the situation is just as difficult. For, for centuries, Christians were deeply suspicious of the way marriage was practiced in the Greco-Roman world. And in fact, many of them were also deeply suspicious of sex itself. St. Augustine certainly comes to mind in that regard. And it wasn't until as late as the 12th century, so we're talking more than a thousand years after Jesus, that the institutional church became officially and intentionally involved in the institution of marriage. What is my point? <laughs> Just this. The ancient Mediterranean world of the biblical writers is not our world. The social structures, family units, and economic systems of, those ancient of that ancient world are not the social structures, family units, and economic systems of our world. 
And this means at the very least that when we're trying to discern what the gospel means for us today, it's going to take a lot of hard work of translating and interpreting. So, for example, when we hear Matthew's Jesus declare this morning that he has come not to bring peace, but a sword, this does not mean that he was a gun-toting fan of militarism. Given the broader context of that declaration, Jesus is making the point of his own ministry clear. To paraphrase, I have come not to baptize the status quo, but to critique it and transform it. Remember, this, is, this chapter in Matthew's Gospel is where Jesus is sending out his disciples to do the work of ministry. These, these are his instructions to them. And so what he's saying here is that this ministry of mine that I'm describing is your ministry too, and you better be ready for the consequences. Critiquing your culture in the name of God, he says, will divide families, invite violent resistance, and basically create not very much of what we think of as peace. Don't put this in your evangelism brochure, by the way. I don't think this would necessarily draw new members to your church. Taking up this ministry, Jesus says, will mean taking up the cross, not as a masochistic act of self-denigration, but because the cross is inevitable whenever anyone speaks truth to power. Whenever anyone has the courage to say that the emperor is in fact naked. Now remember, first century society is not like our society. Nonetheless, this gospel passage should give us pause. A good number of American Christians today, including me, take an awful lot for granted about our social institutions and the structure of our society. And as we keep learning in new ways, sometimes every day, these structures are unsustainable. But sustainability is not really the issue, as if finding a way to keep the whole thing running would make it all okay. The hard words we've heard from Jesus this morning, and they're hard. These hard words from Jesus urge us to examine our social and cultural assumptions from top to bottom, perhaps especially concerning what we mean by that terribly slippery word, family. I do believe Christians have every reason to support full marriage equality for gay and lesbian couples as a matter of social and economic justice. And I believe this because both Jesus and the Hebrew prophets were pretty clear in their denunciations of social and economic injustice. I also believe, however, Christians need to say more than that about the way marriage and family is configured in our society today. And what kind of gospel speech we may choose to offer on that topic may not at first make us very popular. 
In fact, you might be annoyed with me right now, <laughs> which is okay. Father Richard will be back in two weeks. But today, the institution of marriage is saddled with far more weight than it can possibly bear. From being the pinnacle of personal fulfillment, an expectation that makes a whole lot of people miserable in their marriages, to being the indispensable economic unit for an unsustainable global marketplace on a planet running out of natural resources. If nearly half of all first marriages end in divorce, and 60% of all second marriages, and 73% of all third marriages end in divorce, and a third of all families in our country suffer from some form of domestic violence, a third? And if more and more people are being priced out of the so-called American dream, then at the very least, the dream itself needs some gospel assessment. In the Gospels, Jesus is deeply troubled by the institution of marriage. There's no way to sort of read our way around that. He is terribly worried that marriage would replace God at the center of his community's life. Become an idol, in other words. And he wasn't just being a pious preacher uh, about this. He wasn't just saying, now make sure God's at the center of your life. Nor was he just urging some kind of monastic community. As the gospel accounts make clear, Jesus was concerned mostly with human thriving and flourishing. And in his day, no less than in our own, marriage was not the answer and indeed was more often part of the problem. Now, just to be clear, and don't feel like you have to write the bishop this afternoon or something, I am not suggesting that we abolish the institution of marriage. <laughs> Though, that certainly is what many of the earliest Christian communities seemed to do for a good many centuries. I am suggesting that the gospel challenges us this morning to consider where the center of our life with God and therefore human flourishing actually resides. For Jesus, it resides in the family of his followers. Families not made from marriage contracts or biological children, but from all those who take up the life of costly discipleship from all those willing to critique the death-dealing forces of their society, from all those animated by the gospel vision of thriving human communities. This gospel challenge may well mean rethinking some of our most basic cultural assumptions. It may mean making some painful adjustments in our priorities, 
It may mean reconfiguring our social, economic, and political lives in some previously unimaginable ways. And all of this may well mean feel like losing your very life. But take heart. That's exactly how Jesus said we find it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.